All right, so tonight we are in 1 Kings chapter 8. And as we come to 1 Kings chapter 8, well, the, the entire Bible is unique, right? Nothing, I mean, you get the synoptic gospels, you get similar stories. Chronicles has things similar to Kings at times. But really, I was thinking about this this week, and even last week, preparing for this week. In 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord, it's about 950 B.C., and Solomon, we saw that he spent, it took him, you know, seven years to build the temple. He spent the first four years of being a king assembling all the elements to build the temple, the quarried stone, the wood shipped down the Mediterranean Sea, carried over the mountains into Jerusalem. Quite a process and huge project that was happening with all that was going on there to get to this place. But we saw last week that he finished the work. You got to begin a major work. You got to finish that work. This task had a stop-start completion. We talked about that Saturday. In fact, that was the topical message on Saturday. So as we come to chapter 8, where the temple is going to be dedicated, thinking about this, you know, the temple was built first by Solomon by God's decree. David had a vision, his dad to build it, but it was built by Solomon. It lasted for centuries. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar around 582 B.C. when he took the last of the captives to uh, Babylon. Then it was rebuilt under Ezra, and the book of Ezra revolves around that, where they laid a chief cornerstone, everyone's cheering. But the new temple wasn't quite like the first temple. It didn't equal Solomon's temple. Then the Romans destroyed that temple in 70 AD with Titus and the 12th Legion before he became eventually Caesar. And then we're told in the Bible that there's a a rebuilt temple. And the book of Revelation talks about a third temple. So we often talk about the third temple, and there's all kinds of stuff on the Internet. You can Google about a third temple to be built. This is a very unique building, right? You can build a sanctuary like this sanctuary was built 53, 54 years ago in the 60s, and you can dedicate it to the Lord, and it can be so special. Perhaps maybe even some of you were at Calvary Costa Mason, the first service in the sanctuary when it was built in the early 70s. That would have been something really special. When you build a church and it gets dedicated, that's a special thing, right? That's a spiritual thing. But it wouldn't be the same as the temple, this temple of Solomon, because this temple is during the time of covenant with God's people. The Jews are in a covenant with God. And they were going to have a central place of worship. And God's place of worship was central. See, when Jesus was with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, she said, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, there at the temple, but we worship here on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus said, the time is coming when those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth, not at a central location. So we can ask for God's blessing on a service like tonight in this location. And this could be a house of worship that we come here like, yeah, we're going to go be with the Lord. And certainly on 9-11, as I mentioned, when 9-11 happened, I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa and thousands of people came to the sanctuary that day scared and looking for comfort when there's big earthquakes in mexico right everyone goes to the local catholic church in the village and go to the padre whatever this is common stuff but even so it's not the same as this because this is the covenant also i was thinking about profound buildings now the time of solomon you know the the asian cultures built all kinds of incredible buildings the chinese and koreans and so on and so forth the egyptians of course built the pyramids Back when the Empire State Building, if you've ever been there, I've been to the Empire State Building. It's an amazing thing when they built the Empire State Building. Nothing like it ever in human history. The engineering feat, the, the technology, the skills to do it. It's amazing. 
when SoFi Stadium was built, like, wow, what a stadium, right? Going to LAX, and they was like, there it is, SoFi. Good Chargers, right? Maybe you say go Rams. I went to SoFi Stadium last year for the Chargers-Chiefs game with my son, and I just looked at that stadium. I walked in, I was like, I've, I went to Qualcomm Stadium. I've been to Veterans Stadium, Philadelphia. I've been to Shea Stadium, New York. I've never seen anything like SoFi Stadium. I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in outer space or something. This is amazing. The architecture, the engineering, and it's current. It's new. It's probably, I think it's the newest stadium. Well, the Raiders Stadium in Vegas is pretty new, too. I say all this because we can be enthralled with the building itself, and human history would say we are enthralled. People go to see the pyramids because, like, wow. People go to SoFi and go, wow, okay? And we can be enthralled with a place of worship like when we come to the house of the Lord on, on the worst day of our generation because millennials remember 9-11 and Z doesn't. See, that's how you know Generation Z. They don't remember 9-11. But millennials remember being in second grade, fifth grade, twelfth grade, whatever. That's kind of the cutoff line. Even so, I draw these stories as a comparison because nothing compares to what we're going to read tonight in chapter 8. And as I prepared for chapter 8, I thought... Do not, Pastor Joey, be in a hurry in chapter 8 because they're dedicating the house of the Lord. And on planet Earth, this only happens a couple times ever. So let's see what the Lord does when his house is dedicated by his servant Solomon according to his will on planet Earth around 950 B.C., under the old Mosaic covenant. Verse 1. Now Solomon had assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant. That's the Ark, you know, the golden Ark with the Ten Commandments in it. That they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. So it's not a far, it's going from one place of Jerusalem to another place, but Jerusalem is a city and it's you know, it's a few miles away. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast of the month of Ithium, which is the seventh month. So this is the time of the Feast of Tabernacle, the last of the holidays for the Jews on the Jewish calendar that God gave them back in the law of God in, in uh, Exodus chapter, in Exodus, the second book. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the, the tabernacle of meeting, all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled with him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Remember those giant angels were golden covered there in that holiest of holies, that last little room where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. Remember the Ark was carried on poles, golden poles. Extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So the pot of manna has been removed from the ark as has the budding rod of Aaron. They are no longer in the ark. It's been 500 years. We don't know when or how they're removed, but they're not in the ark at this time. It's just the Ten Commandments, the second set that God gave Moses. 
Verse 10, And it came to pass, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. So this is this little phrase that Solomon gives. The man who wrote Song of Solomon, the man who wrote all the Proverbs, the man who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he just has a simple statement. He would dwell in a dark cloud, and I have built you an exalted house where you will dwell in forever. And this was what happened this day. Now, remember David, Solomon's dad, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh to Jerusalem, remember they carried it on the cart and things went wrong because that's not the way they were supposed to carry it. The wheel went down, Uzzah touched it, he was struck down by the Lord. And they put the ark at Obed-Edom's house for three months, but he was blessed. And then David went and got the ark, brought it to Jerusalem. He was dancing. They were sacrificing every six feet. Trespass offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, all those offerings that were there in the Old Testament always pointing us to Jesus Christ and his offering on the cross. Every offering in the Old Testament points to Jesus on the cross and the blood of God shed for us. So when you see Solomon, all these offerings, these are just foreshadows. This is just like black and white TV before it really gets to where we're at now. Live stream. It's just foreshadows of what would come. All these sacrifices. And David did this, and he rejoiced, and he celebrated. It was a huge feast for Israel, and all Israel was rejoicing. So that's a previous generation. And now Solomon has a shorter parade, and everyone's there. The 12 tribes are all represented, the chiefs, the heads, the heads of the father's houses. Anyone that's everyone, everyone that's anyone, they're all there for the coronation of the house of the Lord. It's an amazing day in human history. Because again, this is Israel in a land the size of Southern California. These are the people of covenant. They've been in the land for 500 years. And the, te- the Ark of the Covenant had been in the tabernacle, a tent, which is like mobile. It's like your transit van, you know, your, your cruiser millennial vehicle that you just take everywhere. It's in transit. But now God is taking root and he's planting himself there in this temple. And again, it's not something men are manufacturing. It's something that the Lord is doing. Because you can have a huge parade, and you can have great singers, and you can have all this stuff going on, but in the end, you cannot manufacture the presence of the Lord. Perspiration does not mean inspiration. If the Lord wants to send his spirit, he's going to send his spirit. And if he sends us Shekinah glory to per- confirm that he's in these events and in these things, he'll send his glory. Like the day of Pentecost. You can try and do something in your own strength in the name of Jesus, or you can wait on the Lord till he sends tongues of fire and you get out there and that fisherman that was chicken little 50 days before is now the boldest man on planet earth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire. When God confirms something, he confirms it with his power and his presence. And he confirmed this this day. Because if you look at all the world religions and all the things that men can do, and again, dedicating buildings and all the things that happen, like this holy place, that holy place, it just can't compare to this. This is planet Earth. This is one day in the human race about 2,950 years ago. This happened. And this happened in Israel. And in a universe of multiple dimensions where we're in time, space, and matter, the glory of the Lord came from the other dimension, the realm of the spirit, the realm of eternity. 
and he dwelt among men on this day. What a glorious thing to think about. The cloud of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and the cloud of the Lord is his presence. So we read in the Old Testament that no one has seen God any time, nor can he be seen, or we can see him or live. But then we're told in the New Testament, no one has seen the Father any time, but the only begotten of the Father, Jesus Christ, he has revealed him to us. So when we see Jesus, we see the Father. When we see how Jesus treats people and how he responds to the woman caught in adultery, how he treats the man who's desperate for his dying son or servant, all these things, we see the heart of the Father. We sang it earlier with Danny. You are the way, the truth, and the life, right? We just sang that. So here, this cloud comes. The cloud of God is very important in the Bible. The cloud came for Israel when he made the covenant with them. Because God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So when you think about the throne room of God, Revelation 4, described for us in detail, and also by prophets like Isaiah and others, when they describe the glory of the Lord in his throne room, because we're going to see his throne room, and we're going to see his glory. And we're going to, if through faith we're in the land's book of life, and we're in, or the books are open and we're out, and we're told why we're out. But there in Revelation 4, the rainbow is over his throne of glory, but we don't see a face for God the Father. He sent the Son. And that's why Revelation 5 is the Son is at the right hand of the Father, and they, we cast our crowns before him and we say, worthy is the land that was slain from before the foundation of the world. So here the cloud comes in glory. And the cloud came... With the covenant made at Mount Sinai, the cloud came to Moses when he received the Ten Commandments. This cloud shows up on occasion, and the presence of the Lord is in the cloud. It's called the Shekinah glory. That's what it is. And here the cloud comes, confirming his presence, and the priests, they got to get out. They got to get out. The presence and the glory of the Lord, they've got to get out. Whenever the Shekinah glory came, everyone is overwhelmed by the glory, the holiness of his presence and the, the holiness of his person and his character, it's impossible for God to lie, but not us because we do lie, right? God is holy, we are sinful. And that's the distinction of the cloud with sinful men. It's hard not to think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Those you've seen the movie, the original one with Harrison Ford, when they open the ark and the angels are flying around and it's just like, Whoa! you know, it made you terrified of the ark. But that's not that far removed from the idea and the concept of God's holiness in his cloud. In the New Testament, when the cloud came, Jesus was transfigured on the mountain with the three apostles, Peter, John, and James. Remember, Jesus said the three, the 12, and the 70, and the multitude and individuals in the multitude, like a bullseye. And when Jesus' glory was unveiled, much like the tabernacle gives way to the temple, a tent gives way to gold, right? Like the, it's the upgrade. When Jesus' glory was unveiled, his eternal glory is unveiled to those three pillars, Peter, John, and James, who changed the world, and we're here because they did, because we're an extension of what God began with them on the day of Pentecost, right here tonight. His glory was so glorious that they, they're overwhelmed, and Elijah's there, and Moses there, from, again, from eternal dimension. They're there in time, space, and matter. And it's, it's so transforming. Well, Peter, you know, Peter, give him credit, had to say something like, should we build a, this is great, we should build tents for everybody. And then the father spoke, and he said, this is my son, hear him. And nobody's talking anymore. That's the end of it. 
Then when Jesus gave the great commission and he's there in his resurrected body, which you could touch and feel and see the wounds, because he said to Thomas, be doubting no more. Put your fingers right there where the, where, the, where the nail was. Then when he ascends into heaven, the cloud comes again. The cloud comes and he ascends up into the cloud. It's not the clouds on a beautiful autumn day when we have puffy clouds. It's not a marine layer in June. Or a thunder bumper when there's a hurricane, what's left of it, in the desert in Southern California. It's a unique cloud. It's, it's the eternal cloud, and it comes and it receives Jesus up. So when Jesus ascended, he ascended because he transcends time, space, and matter. And he ascended and went up in the cloud, and he's gone. And it's not like I said, like, uh, like he's a Tesla launch or something, or he's a, a satellite like our engineers, or like Anthony working on that rocket they're going to launch. You know, Anthony's part of the plan to put the first uh, black man and woman on the moon in 2025 with his engineering job as vice president, all this stuff, and, you know, Pastor Garrett, he's a rocket scientist as well. And that rocket goes out from Cape Canaveral. And of course, we have family in Vero Beach, and I follow lots of surfers in Florida, and they always post when something goes up. It goes up, and it keeps going up, 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 up. That's not what Jesus did. When those rockets go up, and that Jeep lands on Mars, and men are on the moon, that's time, space, and matter. When Jesus goes up, he's going up in the cloud of glory with the Father to the Father. And it seats the right hand of the Father. And then we're told about this cloud that when he returns, he will come with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This cloud of glory has made appearances on planet Earth, on private level, larger level, but ultimately the destiny of the human race is to see this cloud of glory. In all the rebellion and all the blasphemies against the Lord, planet Earth will see this cloud of glory when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. He says, be watching, be ready, for you know that that hour when he returns. Had we known, we would have known when the thief was coming, we would have watched our goods. So he asked the planet Earth, who then is that faithful, wise servant whose master finds so doing was entrusted to him. So the Shekinah cloud of glory here reminds us that God is holy and man is sinful, but God is gracious and merciful and He's coming. Isn't it nice when you read about this kind of glory? You don't go like, ah, you know, something happened long ago. We, we will never see something like this. No, planet, it's coming. And I think it's possible that when Jesus comes for you in eternity, like, there, there could be the cloud of glory. Doesn't have to be. I'm not saying it theologically. I'm just saying it could be. Could be. There is a transition. Because having watched people step into eternity of faith, they're, they're out of the room with us. They're just leaving the room, and they're going to Jesus. They're seeing Jesus. We're not seeing Jesus. It's like Stephen in the book of Acts. He sees Jesus. The other people don't see Jesus. He's our, it's like it's happening. It's like, so who knows? But for the kingdom of God and for the followers of Christ, the cloud is a glorious thing. It's the presence of God. It's the next dimension. It's the fullness of everything we believe. Daniel again was singing that song about no eyes seen, no ear heard, those things that he's prepared for us, to those who love him. And all the promises and all the glory that is awaiting us, where this mortal puts on immortality, this corruptible puts on incorruptibility, it's when we transcend to the next dimension. It's like us going in the cloud or going in the kind of glory. Isn't that good news? Because our outward body's perishing, but our inward man, inward woman's being renewed. And these are the promises of God. The promises of men. Gosh, don't get me going. 
Thank you, Lord. So Shekinah glory. He's coming. And there's a glory to come. And it drove them from the temple in the holy place. The priests are the only people that could be there. But for us, it's our call. Forward, onward, upward with the king of kings. Verse 14. Then the king, Solomon, turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. While all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, hey, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David. And with his hand has fulfilled its saying. Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. 500 years before from their slavery. I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house. That my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build. So that's quoting what the Lord said about David. But now Solomon says in verse 17, expounding on what the Lord said about his father. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build a temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. And I have fulfilled the position of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I've built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made for our fathers, which he brought them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So in this part of the speech, uh, verse 14 through 21, Solomon recounts how the whole thing began with the temple to be built, that David, his father, wanted to build the temple. He had the heart for the Lord. He was a shepherd for the Lord, and he saw he took care of God's people like a shepherd would take care of sheep, and God loved that about him. But remember, David was a man of war. He shed blood in combat. He'd shed a lot of blood. He was, he, was, he was a warrior, and he saw a lot of war, a lot of violence, a lot of things none of us ever would want to see. And God said that David could not build the temple because he was a man of blood. So even though he had a heart for the Lord, and that pleased the Lord, he was a man of blood. And God is love. Now, God is perfect justice, but ultimately, the war against sin and the kingdom of darkness was Jesus being crucified for our sins on the cross. We don't need angry, violent men and women misrepresenting God on planet Earth under any circumstance. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and his death on the cross is to bring peace to people at war with God. The war is already there. We're already perishing. But he comes as the Prince of Peace. We represent the Prince of Peace. He's As he said through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but they would turn from their sins and turn to me. And the cross is the place of forgiveness, the place of peace. But David could not build this temple because his life was a violent life. Not qualifications of a pastor or deacon is they're not violent, right? You can't can't be a hothead. You just, you gotta, you gotta really represent the Lord properly. Now, Solomon was the one chosen by God to build the temple. There's an interesting phrase that God said to David, though, when he said he couldn't build the temple. He said to David, it's in your heart to build it. You did well, it's in your heart, but you shall not. This is pretty, this is encouraging and comforting, I think, for all of us, because the Lord knows our heart. And there's things that we may feel we want to do, we have a heart to do, but we're just not called to do it. And sometimes, like, like, you're like, oh, I really want to do that for that person, but they wouldn't let me. Because some things you want to do for people, they won't let you do. Or, I really want to do this, but you couldn't do it. For example, 
Before COVID, remember I went to Russia. In three weeks time, the Lord got me from praying for someone in Siberia to being in Siberia. When against all odds, getting the visa and everything in November, 2019. And God just totally opened my eyes. So all was going on with the Calvary Chapel movement in Russia, the people of Russia, all this stuff and quite a fair bit of Russian language. And when I came back from Russia, I just had this vision like, okay, we're gonna go back and we're gonna do this, this and that. I can see what the Lord wants to do. I've prayed for Russia since the Iron Curtain came down back in 89, 90 and all the open doors that happened. But as you recall, COVID hit. And right before COVID hit, I got the, I got the Willy Wonka golden ticket visa. You know Willy Wonka, I got a golden ticket, right? One of the hardest things to get is a visa for Russia that's a humanitarian visa that allows you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in Russia. My first trip was a tourist visa, so I was very, you know, on eggs whenever I was, eggshells, you know, like whenever I was doing stuff, like just, no, I was asked to speak at churches, but a lot of churches have FESBA there, the old, FESBA's FSB, that's the KGB, the domestic uh, surveillance, like CIA. Uh, and so, like, I was told, like, you know, you're really taking a risk. And we all see Brittany Griner sitting in prison in Russia right now. And that's the very reason, well, hers is for hashish. But they still do the same thing seven years for, you know. It's kind of like when you cross the Mexican border. You don't have the same rights there that you have here as an American citizen. So the first visa was a tourist visa. And I just spied out the land like the spies that Joshua sent out. But the second visa was the one where I could preach the gospel. I could do this and do all these things and go back to the youth group in Siberia and all these things. And I was so excited. As you know, I studied Russian every single day. And my Russian got good. I mastered the Russian alphabet, 33 letters. And I, I began to really identify Russian words and all. And I was so excited. But then COVID hit. And over the next year and a half, that opportunity to go was done. The visa expired. All these things happened. And it was very disappointing to me because I thought, I thought for sure, like, you know, 16 months of studying Russian every day, I felt like this, this is like, this is what God's called me to do. Like, like, you don't just wake up and say, oh, I can't wait. Like, comrade, you know, like, you just, you like, you just don't wake up and want to study Russian. You know what I mean? Like, did you wake up and want to study Russian during COVID? No, it was in my heart. Now we're still doing all kinds of stuff for Russia and we're going to do a huge financial release by November for the pastor's conference the youth going down to Sochi and what they're doing in Siberia, our finances can go there, but, you know, I don't think I'm going to rush anytime soon. But it was in my heart. And I was like determined and determined and determined and determined. Like, oh, they're saying now if you're from these countries, you can get into Russia, it, you know, and y y this and that and all that. And then in the end, the Lord closed the door. And it was very disappointing for me, more than you think it was. And that's a classic example where the Lord said, you know, it was in your heart. It's reckoned to your account. Like, because I'm like, Lord, did I just waste 16 months of my life setting aside like 30 minutes to an hour every day to learn Russian? When I meditate on the Russian alphabet going back and forth, up and down, pronunciations and all these things, was it just a waste of time? What was I doing? The Lord's like, but how can you know? How could we know anything during COVID where it would go, right? And then the Lord's like, just let it go. Does that mean it was in vain? What was under the Lord? Maybe if I hear Russian TV, I kind of know some of what they're saying. A lot more when it's Spanish, but I know some of the Russian. It's not in, it's not in vain. Elizabeth Elliot, the great saint that loved Jesus so much, the missionary to Ecuador, remember her husband was killed by the natives, the Aka Indians, along with four other men. A little-known story of her life is she translated a certain uh, Ecuadorian dialect. It had no translation. Listen to me. Escucha me. 
She took a dialect that had no written words to it, formed an alphabet, and got the whole New Testament going with it. But unlike the day where we have where you upload it to the cloud, it was all in one set of documents that she had in a backpack. It was an entire year plus of her life to translate the New Testament in this dialect. That backpack was stolen from her in Quito, Ecuador, in about 1958, six years after her husband gave her life in service to the Lord. You know, like, ladies, men, how would we feel if an entire year's worth of our life was just gone and someone stole it from us? Someone about 60 years ago, they're all probably an attorney now, Elizabeth Elliot is, stole the backpack from a white woman in Quito, Ecuador, that had the entire New Testament and the only copy of the New Testament in that Ecuadorian dialect. And this is what I learned from Elizabeth Elliot, and this is why I say she's one of the most five most influential women in my life. She said you can make anything a sacrifice to the Lord. She wrote a whole book on loneliness, and she said that's a sacrifice to the Lord. But when I read about it, I'd be so mad. If it's soccer, I got the red card, man. They're pulling me back. A whole year of my life, teed up, whatever, you know. The fine's coming on Monday, right? I mean, the big fine is going to land on Monday for what we did on Sunday. She just said, you make that an offering to the Lord. It was not in vain. Whatever you do, you do it hardly as unto the Lord. So whether I was focusing on the Russian language every day for 16 months and I never went, or I translated the New Testament into a dialect and was stolen from my backpack, it's unto the Lord. See, in as much as in your heart and you set out to do it and you're doing it for the Lord, the Lord knows it, and that's a good thing. That's the lesson. That's the lesson, because we all have disappointment with the Lord. We thought he was going to do this, and he did that. And we thought he was going to do that, and then he did this. But the real issue is the heart. And God says, as much as it was in your heart, that's a good thing. And that's a good word for us tonight. Because you serve the Lord for 35 years like I have, you will know sooner or later, you don't just have disappointment. You have great disappointment. Verse 22, we're going to read a fair bit of text here because this is the prayer. So pay attention and see what words stand out to you as I read through this text. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. Now he starts out standing. When he's finished, he'll be kneeling. And he said, verse 23, Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy for your servants who walk before you with their, all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant, David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their ways that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant, David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I built? So that's a very important thought there. He's like, hey, God's not limited to this temple, obviously. And he makes that clear. Stephen in the book of Acts will quote this concept because when Stephen was accused of blasphemy and all the things they, they killed him for in the book of Acts in the New Testament, one of which was blasphemy against the temple. And he quotes this passage saying, God's not confined to the temple. Verse 28, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there. 
that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. Verse 31. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you and they've turned their back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from sin their sin because you afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land where you've given, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven in your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all of his ways whose hearts you know, for you alone know the hearts of all sons of men, that they may fear you all the days of their lives in the land which you gave our fathers. Moreover, concern the foreigner who is not of your people Israel but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Wow, this parenthetical thought, amazing Solomon sees the plan for the Gentiles, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to the church to this day. He saw it and he proclaimed it right here. First one to do so like this, too, at this level in the Jewish covenant history, 500 years into it. Verse 44. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, whenever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you've chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them into the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, and when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we've sinned and done wrong, we've committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and prayed to you toward this land, which you gave their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built in your name, then... Here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions, which they've transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. That your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplications of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you, for you separated them from among all people of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. 
So here's the, the heart of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. This is the heart of it. And you can see the consistent theme. There's a when and when this happens, when that happens, when that happens, when that happens. And what happens all the time? Bad things from sin. Right? Did you catch that? Everything is good. You know, like, we already know we, have, we can have joyful days. And we already know there's... The human experience is filled with lots of things. But the number one issue on planet Earth is sin. That's it. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And unless we recognize our sin, we cannot be saved from our sin. Jesus means Savior. Gabriel said to Mary, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is not just the great teacher or the moral insight person or all these wonderful things that the little kids like or something. Jesus is God. And God died on the cross for our sins. So Jesus might look this way in a kid's Bible for a four and five-year-old, and he might look this way in some famous painting at the Last Supper, but Jesus is Savior. And Jesus on the cross is the vision we really need of Jesus. Because he came to save us from our sins. And what plagues humanity? What are the problems of Essentially, all social problems and mental and emotional problems is sin because we're born sinners separated from God. And it's Christ who came to reconcile us to God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When we partake of communion shortly with the bread and the cup, it's not because Jesus taught the greatest sermon of all time with the Sermon on the Mount or showed empathy and raised Jairus' daughter from the grave. It is because he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave for our hope and justification. The problem that I have, that you have, that humanity has, is sin in every generation. Paul said it best in Romans 7, that the things we don't want to do, we do, and the things we want to do, we don't do. And people say, was that before he's saved, or is that after he's saved? Listen, we know that Christ died for the believer for their sins, past, present, and future, because he's universal. He's trans-dimensional in what he did on the cross. We're sealed with his spirit. When we give our life to Christ, our sins are forgiven, we're cleansed. And the, sure, the surest confirmation of someone being saved is the release of the guilt of their sins. That's the surest confirmation because that confirmation comes from the Lord. And it comes through faith because if we believe that he died for our sins and we receive him, he'll confirm it by his spirit because we're told his spirit confirms our spirit that we're his. So the whole purpose of the temple is to find forgiveness for sins and comfort, restoration, and hope to go forward and to learn from those sins. And why? Because they're the people of God under covenant and they're sanctified and set apart. So when we come together in the church of Jesus Christ and we come to worship the Lord with worship leaders and we come to hear the Bible taught, if we are not letting the Holy Spirit work with our sins, and keep us going forward. Because the devil wants to put us in sin, ensnare us in sin, beat us down in sin, and throw us overboard with sin. That we're all sinners is unquestioned. It even said so in verse 40, uh, 46. All sin. Yeah, like, like anyone that really knows the Lord, they don't need someone to tell them we're sinners. I know I'm a sinner. You know you're a sinner. It's like the prayer with the Pharisee. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man. You know, like that, that man went away justified. Not the, he was a tax collector, not the Pharisee. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this guy right here. He's the biggest loser ever. He's a tax collector. And the tax collector, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man. Listen, 
self-awareness of the sinful nature always lurking and needing to be surrendered to the Lord daily is the mark of maturity for a woman of God and a man of God. Because in the Lord's Prayer, we're told, forgive us our debts this day as we forgive those who sinned against us. And as we realize our great need for forgiveness, we extend forgiveness to other people. And we receive the blessing, and then we show the blessing. And the greatest way the church can witness for Jesus Christ is to be gracious toward other people who sin against them. Because that's really where people see Jesus. Thanking the good Lord when you're the world champion, that works on TV, but that doesn't really help the person who's really struggling. But when you praise the Lord through your hardships and heartaches and you show that you've been forgiven, you extend forgiveness, that's how the kingdom of God is advanced in people's lives. Church, above all else, when the body of Christ gathers in a building, it is a place to find forgiveness, cleansing, healing, restoration, and to be reminded that we are a people separated from among all people, the church of Jesus Christ, to our God. And we're on a sanctifying journey. And why some people choose to believe the gospel and go forward and others don't, I don't understand that. That's God's business. But for the people that let the redeemed Lord say yes and amen and, and come partake of communion and come receive forgiveness. And those who go forward in an altar call with great glory or anything else, you know what? The ones that really make it, you know they make it because they're touched by the Spirit and they're transformed lives. They haven't arrived. We never arrive till we do arrive in the presence of the Lord. But they are going forward. Like it says in Philippians 3, forgetting what's behind, we press on what lies ahead to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, and that's it right here. Solomon's just black and white version. He's the prelude to everything Jesus would do. Because all that he's praying for is fulfilled when we gather in Jesus' name in his church in 24 time zones, in thousands of, of, of dialects, in, multi, in innumerable ethnicities. The church of Jesus Christ. Today, September 20th, 2022, this is being fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ worldwide right now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not a shadow like this, but the fullness. Now, verse 54. And so we just praise the Lord, man. Praise God. Verse 54. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hand, with his, uh, his hand spread to heaven. So see, remember, he started standing and he ended kneeling, which is pretty beautiful. Verse 55. Then he stood and blessed the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given us rest, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he has promised. There has not failed one word of all of his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Literally referencing the law and all the law of God and all that. It's, it's all, it all holds true. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake, forsake us. May he, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he's commanded to our fathers. And may all these words of mine, with which I've made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God and walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings. Then he offered the Lord 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So it's a massive offering to the Lord. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, the fat, 
the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar there was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast in all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. It is interesting that it starts out talking about David. It was David's vision to build the temple, and it ends with all the good that God had done for David. (laughs) You know, that was one of our points on Saturday night, that when you're gone, that what you believed, how you lived, what you sowed, and what what those eternal dividends that you invested in people are still alive when you leave planet Earth, even the economic dividends you invest in the kingdom of God after you leave planet Earth, they just keep on growing. Who knows what glorious things will come to pass when you're in eternity that you were praying for when you were here in time, space, and matter. It was George Mueller who played for four different people deliberately every single day. The great, the great man of God from Bristol, England, George Mueller. And he fed all the orphans, like 1,200 orphans every day by faith, just every day by faith. It was a big supporter of Hudson Taylor, who I mentioned Saturday night. Um, but he prayed for four people that did not know the Lord. And in his lifetime, over about four decades, those were enemies of his ministry. And one by one, they came to the Lord over like a 30, 40-year period but the last person he never saw come to the Lord, but that person came to the Lord at George Mueller's funeral and became a strong servant of the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. We have no idea what God's going to bring to pass from the fruit of our labors in time when we're in another dimension. And it's just a good reminder of that. And by the way, isn't it great when Solomon says, you know, he's kept every promise. Like I would say like, well, duh, but he does keep every promise. All the promises of God and Jesus Christ are what? Yes and Amen. Yeah. Not one promise fails. We build our salvation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We base our, we build our worldview on the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And not one promise, not one good promise will ever fail. So if we put ourselves under the blessings, that's where we'll be. And God will give us peace. He'll give us protection and he'll prosper us in the entire human experience. But if we want to go against his word, resist his word, attack his word, become judge and jury of his word like so many do in this generation, we put ourselves under his chastening. We put ourselves against God, even more so than we already are when we're born sinners separated from God. So the wise thing we can do is make sure one of the blessings or the spout where the glory comes out and just be in the place where God can bless us. All the promises. As I'm moving toward into the heart, I'm moving forward in my 60s. And as I think about 35 years of ministry, 35 years of marriage, as I do weddings and funerals in the same year for the same family, I just think, what really matters? The kingdom and the promises is all that matters. That's all that matters. To do Christy Estes Memorial here six months ago and do her daughter's wedding there on Sunday, uh, it's the human experience. We're here by faith. We have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We walk by faith. We live by faith. And the faith is in the promises. And we look under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's a beautiful chapter, isn't it? So glorious. And the, the most beautiful thing about it is, in the New Testament, we're called the temple of God and we give our life to Christ. And all that glory is ours to be sealed in our hearts through faith and the ministry of the Spirit working in our life from glory to glory until the day of Christ Jesus. Just know this, when I'm gone, I'm in glory. When you're gone, through faith in Jesus, you're in glory. And that's, that's our destiny. This is, all, this is all just a prelude. The real deal 
is the next dimension. And we can never lose sight of that. And ultimately, I'll say this, where Solomon said, You're, this temple is where you dwell, but when you pray, he doesn't say he's in the temple. Where does he say he is? In your throne in heaven. So here we are in this house of worship tonight, praising the Lord. But this isn't so much where he is. I mean, the Lord's with us right now. He inhabits the praises of his people. He walks in the midst of his church. But ultimately, where he is is where we're going for glory. So be encouraged tonight from the dedication to the temple. A very special text, a very unique text, and one that should encourage us and elevate our faith for sure.